Hey guys, today's show is brought to you by the two liberty-minded entrepreneurs that are now responsible for supplying me with my daily cup of joe, and that is Lorenzotti Coffee. Our buddies at Lorenzotti will deliver premium Italian coffee right to your door or supply you with professional coffee brewing equipment. All you have to do is go to lorenzotti.coffee and use promo code FICTION to get 10% off your order. That's Lorenzotti, L-O-R-E as in Edward, N as in Nancy, Z as in Zebra, O-T-T-I dot coffee. Promo code FICTION for 10% off your order. You know, I just had uh, lunch with my parents a couple days ago, and they had ordered some coffee, and my dad said it was a good cup of coffee. He's going to re-up. And, you know, he doesn't give compliments too, uh, too often or too easily. So take it from him. It's a good cup of coffee. And support our sponsors who help make this show possible. Lorenzotti.coffee, promo code FICTION. All right, let's get this show started. Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Welcome. What is up? What is up, everybody? I just sounded like uh, Jim Rome is burning (laughs) with that intro. But welcome back, everybody. This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast. Thank you so very much for tuning in once again. I, of course, am your fearless leader, the one and only Johnny the Gentile Profita, the purveyor of so-called fiction. And it is Friday. Happy Friday to all you fiction peddlers out there. Hope you're going to have a very exciting weekend. You got a lot of cool stuff planned. I have nothing really planned. (laughs) I'll probably just get together with some friends, maybe uh, hang out. The weather looks like it's going to be pretty nice. It's been very summery in Chicago, sunny and hot and humid. Yeah, I'm a little late getting this episode out today. This will probably drop Friday night for you guys. I've been uh, struggling with this thing. Uh, it's driving me crazy. I, I'm For those of you who don't know, I do some trading in the market, some currency trading, and I am in a mastermind group that meets once a week and we've been developing a trading strategy. We've been working on it for a couple of years now. I think oof, it's been two years. It's probably been close to two years and it, it has been a, a pretty interesting ride. I'd never done anything like this before. And we have uh, like a, an actual professional trader who sort of organized the whole thing. And I've, I've learned a lot from him. And it's just been, it's been very cool. It's been tedious and at sometimes very boring. I, I sort of um, geek out on some of that stuff sometimes, but even for me, it's uh, a little much to handle at, at certain points. But we've gotten it to the point where we've got the strategy coded 
and we have a bot to do the trades. And so we finally had the, the bot released to everybody in the group so that we can test it. And for the life of me, I can't. I'm such a retard with computers. I can't figure out how to get this thing set up. I have, I don't know if anybody has used it. It, it only works in Ninja Trader right now. And so it, you apply the strategy and you enable it. And it's supposed to actually, you know, start taking trades, all of these trades based on the strategy. And I just, I applied it, I enabled it, it's connected to live data and nothing is happening. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I've been messing with it for the last uh, couple of hours. I uninstalled NinjaTrader and reinstalled it because, uh, you know, my uh, thing expired or whatever. I don't know, whatever. Um, that's why, long story short, perhaps too late. That's why this episode's going to be a little late, so still getting it on Friday, though. I'm sticking to that schedule, although I have been thinking about doing a Monday-Thursday instead of Tuesday-Friday. I don't know how you guys feel about that. The reason I do Friday now is because I'm off every other Friday, and I just thought it would give me more time to dedicate to doing an episode. But at the same time, it kind of like you kind of want to get your weekend started. And I don't know if a lot of people listen to podcasts on Friday or even over the weekend. So maybe it ha it makes more sense to get it out to you guys on Thursday and Monday. I could do that. If you have a preference, you can uh, tweet at me at Pedal Fiction. You better follow me on Twitter before you start to do that. Or you could join the private Facebook group and you guys can, we can discuss it in there further if that's something you guys might be interested in. But anyway, hopefully I'll get that uh, stupid bot thing figured out this weekend and I can just set it and forget it. That is the idea. And the beauty of doing it with currency, trading currencies is a 24-hour market for those of you who aren't familiar with it. It's closed. It closes on Friday and it opens back up on Sunday night. And then from Sunday to Friday, it's 24-hour. There, there's like always a currency that you can trade and you can do very small trades. You can. You don't have to risk a lot of money. So it's perfect for one of these um, trading bots type setups where it can just take trades while I'm sleeping and I'm not risking, you know, you can set it to risk like 1% of your account or something and you can do really small uh, dollar amount trades that you can't do when you're trading stocks, for instance. Um, and then with stocks, you run into all sorts of day trading um, regulation rules <laughs> um, thanks to the uh, SEC and uh all that stuff so but the strategy does actually work really well on stocks as well and actually better like the the return the risk reward we, we go for in currency is a, a five to one risk to reward so for every dollar we risk if the trade um, hits target we we make five dollars and if we if we don't we lose one dollar and uh, on stocks it's a ten to one so it's a really good risk to return, uh, risk to reward, on on both of those really, which is nice because then the strategy doesn't have to pan out very often. You know, a lot of the, I, I used to do a lot of pattern trading. That's where you sort of look for patterns on charts, and then when when you know four criteria for your pattern takes shape, you you take a trade, and a lot of those patterns, you know, they were profitable a little over 50% of the time and there's just 
you, you don't get that kind of risk reward in a strategy that's that's right that often. Your risk reward is much smaller. I would require like at least a one to one risk reward. But the, the the best I would ever get was like two and a half, sometimes three. And you have to take a ton of trades because you're not making a, a good return on all of those trades. Um, if, if your strategy is like a, a 20 to one or something, you could even have an inverted risk to reward and still be profitable. It just kind of depends on what the strategy is. But the reason it works on stocks and currencies alike is because these charts are all the same chart of currency acts exactly the same way from a technical analysis perspective as a chart for stocks or bonds or anything, which is why I, I was thinking about doing that course on how to, how, how to technically, how to do technical analysis on a chart of any kind. I've been toying around with the idea of doing some sort of like webinar thing for you, for anybody who's interested. I've seen a little interest uh, trickle in from some people. If I can get enough uh, people interested in it, it would be something that I would put together just to, uh, I don't know, just to do. It wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't charge anything for it. It would be just some free content for you guys that I think might be helpful in your everyday lives, but that's enough of that. I did. Um, it, it's sort of like early Friday evening right now. And I did just see a headline that Trump is it looks like he's going to commute Roger Stone's sentence just days before his uh, prison term was set to begin. And if you guys don't remember the whole Roger Stone thing, he was going to serve, I think, more than three years from, you know, some bullshit charges uh, out of that uh, Mueller report that was also a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> so uh, that that's some good news. If if you can keep a uh, a nonviolent person who hasn't really committed any crimes out of a cage, I think we should do that. I mean, they they really uh, put him through the ringer there. With uh, he was supposed to serve forty months, okay, and the charges were like obstruction, witness tampering, and making false statements to Congress. It's like get the fuck out of here. Congress does nothing but lie to us every day of the week and twice on Sunday, and uh, they're going to put you in a cage for lying to them when he didn't even really lie. He was actually cooperating with them, and he sent them a bunch of emails, and then something during like his testimony or an interrogation or whatever, he, he contradicted what was in the emails or something like that, which... For anybody who's ever gone through an audit, for instance, says I've gone through several, you know, one every year for about 15 years working in finance. Um, when you have to remember an email from a year ago or something that you do every single day over and over and over again, and they ask you about it a year later, it's like, yeah, uh, OK, I, I can't remember. I don't know. Read the emails. Go ahead. <laughs> like that's here, here's here's what happened kind of thing. You have to go back and like refresh your memory for things like that. And it's just un unrealistic to ask somebody to remember shit like that, let alone like a really old man. And uh, man, he his life was like completely ruined. He's financially just bankrupt. It's a pretty sad story. I, I don't know why anybody would cheer that on. Even if you hate Donald Trump, it's just that whole thing was nothing but bullshit. And the fact that that, that people's lives are being ruined for some, you know, political horseshit, it just really, uh, really makes me angry. So I'm pretty glad that that Trump is doing this. It's one of the few th good things that he's actually accomplished. 
he's having a real tough, real tough go of it. He just lost his, um, I don't know, appeal on his tax documents or something in New York. They really want to get a hold of his tax returns so that they can, you know, beat him over the head with some sort of uh, whatever he's been up to to avoid paying taxes, which to me, anytime somebody can not can find a way to not give money to a criminal organization like our government so that they can use it to, uh, you know, imprison people for victimless crimes or bomb people in third world countries. I think that's a good thing. I don't know why anybody would be against tax evasion. It's the most American thing you can do. So uh, if Donald Trump, you know, paid less taxes than he was supposed to, good for him. If he paid zero taxes, even better. Uh, We should all try to pay zero taxes. I mean, taxation is theft, plain and simple. And uh, I don't know, to me, that that's not going to resonate. I know like uh, Democrats and, and lefties out there will go hog wild if they get their hands on a tax return that shows like, oh, he, he didn't pay his fair share or whatever. Or maybe he was, he was doing something nefarious. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the taxation is the nefarious thing. And anything that you can do to avoid it should be fucking praised, not uh, chastised. But that's why uh, us libertarians are a different breed. We recognize the state for what it is and taxation for what it is. And the state is an evil monopoly on the use of force and taxation is theft or extortion if you want to be a little more accurate. Anyway, speaking of libertarians, there's been a lot going around the Twitters these days. <laughs> and I don't I don't want to spend too much time on it because I think a lot of other uh, like uh bigger podcasts that you guys listen to are probably going to be covering this if they haven't already. But I saw that Joe Jorgensen, the uh, the um, Libertarian Party presidential nominee, and the Libertarian Party in general with their Twitter accounts have been pandering to the Black Lives Matter movement and trying to appease all of these woke leftists and their authoritarian cancel culture bullshit which you guys know listening to this show i am no fan of i mean look i don't care whether you're black white indian asian male female or one of those gender neutral people if you are for liberty individual property rights and the non-aggression principle i am with you 100 percent. and now i realize it would be foolish of me to expect people to take those principles all the way to their logical conclusion of anarcho-capitalism. And I would never ask anyone to do that, nor have I ever, or would I even try to convince people to do that. I don't see that being very productive. I'm not one of those libertarians that hammers other libertarians for not being libertarian enough, okay? I just want to try and convince as many people to essentially just don't hurt people and don't take their stuff if you can just do that just buy into those two things and carry them out to their logical conclusions in most of your day-to-day life i would be very happy with that you see when you actually think about what that means to not hurt people and not take their stuff it's going to put you into some very uncomfortable scenarios where a lot of people aren't willing to go like um discrimination, being okay, sort of thing. But where you stand with liberty, I will stand with you, 100%.
The problem is, that's not what this Black Lives Matter movement is all about. It just isn't. Look at what's going on. Look at what they're doing. Okay, It's authoritarian. It's about intimidation. It's about intimidation to get conformity and compliance. There are threats of violence. And yeah, I know, you know, stupid uh, obligatory disclaimer. It's not the whole Black Lives movement, but there's huge elements of that. I mean, that's why businesses are putting up Black Lives Matter signs in their windows. It's like, uh, so, so the mob will pass over them the way God told Moses to uh, have the Israelite families sacrifice a lamb and smear blood on their door so that he would pass over their houses and not slaughter their firstborn male child or whatever. I think that's the way the story goes. I'm not very religious, so uh, you'll have to excuse me if I screwed that story up. I'm Catholic, by the way, but I don't go to church unless somebody died or got married, but I don't begrudge anybody who... um, takes their religion very seriously. That is not for me to decide. But, I mean, these Black Lives Matter protesters are not for liberty, and their demands are not liberating. Okay, They are trying to control everything. Language, media, entertainment, people's livelihoods, their jobs, their businesses, the products that we can buy in stores. Sorry, I'm not going to be on board with that. There's no amount, like, it doesn't matter if there is a good element to Black Lives Matter, and I agree with um, a sliver of it or a portion of it. When when you have elements like that in there, authoritarian, totalitarian elements that are trying to control people's lives, I'm not going to be on board with it. That's the end of the story for me. While, you know, they're, they're doing all that while conveniently not addressing any of the other major problems in the black community. And there are real problems in the black community, and black lives do matter. That's what's so disappointing about this whole thing. Because just to blame everything on systemic racism, this boogeyman of systemic racism, or racism in general, and actively attempt to ruin innocent people's lives and businesses, demand people bend a knee to you, And your totalitarian demands, demanding white people apologize basically just for existing and uh, to kiss the ring, demanding people give you money. None of that is going to solve anything. All of these problems that they claim to care about have nothing to do with that. And And that's all just going to be counterproductive. Blaming something as vague as systemic racism or even, like I said, just racism in general. I mean, that's become a pointless term. It's worthless. As, as many people have pointed out, it has become a worthless word. It is, there's a legal term for situations like racism. It's called void for vagueness. Like if a law or something is too vague, it becomes void because it's vague and nobody can know what it really means. Like nobody knows what racism means anymore. It's, uh, it's void for vagueness, for, for lack of a better term. But just blaming that and coming up with all of these stupid demands while the real serious problems go unaddressed is the real tragedy here. Things will never get better if you keep blaming the wrong problem, the wrong thing for your problem. If your diagnosis is wrong, your prescription will be wrong. 
and in some cases make things actually worse than they were before. I mean, like reparations, right? There's a hell of an idea. Let's force people who never did anything wrong, who haven't oppressed anyone, to give money to people that were never oppressed. <laughs> okay. I mean, they actually have laws that, like, things are written into law that that have uh, specific benefits listed for uh, people based on their skin color. And none of them are to benefit white people. All right? It's always to benefit people of color or other marginalized um, genders or whatever. That's the only real systemic racism in any real sense of the words systemic or racism that I can actually point to. I don't know of any others. Maybe somebody can enlighten me. I know, of course, there are other laws on the books that disproportionately affect people of color. Absolutely. Absolutely that is true for some of them. But why is that? Maybe we should look into that a little bit instead of just shouting racism. Because we all have to live under those laws. So why uh, is, you know, why are some people disproportionately affected? And I don't think you can just say racism and, and have um, any uh, real solution to that problem. And usually what I see most people point to are drug laws and uh, sentencing for, uh, for crimes and things like that. Like black people get harsher sentences than white people. And... While there are definitely instances where that is true, I think just as much of an argument can be made that that is a poverty issue more than it's a race issue. If you're poor in the United States judicial system, you're fucked, plain and simple. If you're rich, you've got a shot, as long as you don't mind just spending a fortune, which makes you wonder, maybe we shouldn't have a government monopoly on the court system. Maybe we should end the war on drugs and legalize everything, all of the drugs, even the worst of the worst. Maybe these Black Lives Matter people should stop being Marxists and come over to the libertarian side of things. And yes, I do see the irony here of me just pitching them to join libertarianism as I'm about to criticize the Libertarian Party and Joe Jorgensen for attempting to do so. I'm sort of, you know, I don't expect to recruit anybody from the woke left to libertarianism. That would be a waste of time and energy. I don't see any of them coming over anytime soon. But if that's what the, the whole movement was just about, you know, forget Black Lives Matter, forget like police brutality. If it was just let's end the war on drugs and legalize everything, legalize all drugs. That would do more to um, better the situation for, for black people in America than anything, than any of these other retarded uh, demands that they have, these retarded Marxist ideology demands that they're trying. It's basically a Trojan horse. This whole Black Lives Matter thing, this is what they've done, right? They've taken um, an issue that nobody can be against, right? If, you, if you're against it, you're racist and will ruin your life. We're going to destroy your business. We're going to get you fired. All of that stuff, right? So they take that issue and they cloak, they use that as the cloak or the Trojan horse for all of their other Marxist ideology. That's what they're doing here. And politicians are going to jump on this Trojan horse as well and use it to get their stupid agenda passed. That's why they, they make everything about race now. It's like climate change is a race issue. 
the economy is a race issue, everything. So then, you know, they can they can use the Black Lives Matter movement, which nobody can be against. Otherwise, you're basically Hitler to, to sort of cram everything else through. And when you when you call them on it, then they're like, no, we're just, uh, you know, we, we just Black Lives Matter and we don't like police brutality. And it's like, all right, but none of none of your demands really have to do with any of that, except for like one of them. You have one that says like we want to police ourselves or defund the police. And then the rest are about reparations and economic justice and, and all this other crap. So I would consider all of these woke uh, leftists to be who are like involved in this cancel culture thing as lost causes. I don't know why the Libertarian Party continues to try to recruit them and um tries to cater to them or like win their approval or something they are there is no chance that they are going to see a joe jorgensen tweet that says like you it's not enough to be passively not racist you have to be actively anti-racist and it's just like oh god was that the like it was just a ter- like a cringe-worthy tweet I, I would never be associated with a political party that does that. But I've never been associated with a political party in general. So anyway, um, I, I, I just think that, you know, poverty is a much bigger issue than than all of this race stuff. And when it comes to the, these areas that they point to where they see these the, the systemic racism in, you know, prison sentencing or something, like I said, you know, it would be nice if we had more than one judicial system to work with, wouldn't it? If you had more than one option, then this government monopoly. But they can't seem to, nobody wants to, you know, even think about that, or they can't wrap their heads around something like something as uh, radical as that taking place. Okay, just be rich. How about that? It's much better. Try being rich. Be rich, and I guarantee you, you will have a much better time navigating the court system than you will if uh if you're poor i mean look at all these professional athletes and and stuff that get caught with drugs and everything they're not doing uh 20 years in prison for having a plant or some cocaine or something like that or you know as paris hilton proclaimed just stop being poor (laughs) probably the best advice you could give someone (laughs) just stop being poor uh, that that's uh that's great advice, but but along the lines of being rich, and reparations, look, I'm a huge proponent of personal responsibility. It's a necessary ingredient for liberty, and I always talk on this show about how if you're not where you want to be in life, it's your fault, and a lot of people take that to be sort of mean and harsh and defeating. It's not. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be empowering. If you are responsible for all of your failures and your lot in life, then you are responsible for your successes as well. And if you're not where you want to be, all you have to do is figure out where you want to be, what it's going to take to get there, and then pay that price. It's, I mean, I I can't say it's that simple, but that, that the formula is that simple. It's going to take a lot of uh, work to get there, but that's how you do it. But me just giving you money is not going to make you happy, okay? It's not. Whether you're black or you're white, all it's going to do is breed resentment. 
I mean, ask anyone that's ever loaned someone large amounts of money and they'll tell you. It actually breeds resentment on both sides. The person receiving the money because I think on some level they're maybe ashamed that they had to take the money and they sort of blame you for making them feel that way or putting them in like sort of like creating that that um, relationship that makes them feel ashamed of themselves. Maybe something like that. I, I don't know exactly. And then the person lending the money is resentful because they never get paid back. And if they're reparations, I mean, you're not going to get paid back and you're going to force people to pay. Well, of course, absolutely everyone being forced to pay would be resentful for that for just for that fact that they're being stolen from because 150 years ago someone else had slaves or someone else was mean to black people and then black people aren't going to be any better better off or happier just receiving a check that that's not going to make you happy and even if it did make them happier all they're going to do is spend it and send all of that money right back to the people who know how to earn money and create wealth Remember the last episode where we talked about the flow of money and how just giving people dollars who don't know how to create wealth, who are just going to spend it and consume it and consume things, is that's only going to exacerbate the wealth gap that Black Lives Matter apparently claims to be all upset about. That's one of their big things, you know, the racial wealth gap. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, I, I never had high hopes for Joe Jorgensen or the Libertarian Party in general. I I just I can't understand what the strategy is here to go after an unwinnable uh, segment of the population while alienating a large portion of the population that might be more receptive to your message. If your message was, wasn't, I'm going to uh, cower to this uh authoritarian Marxist, you know, uh, protest group. <laughs> anyway, um, speaking of just giving people money, well, I saw a couple of articles that, that caught my eye. 50 million Americans have now filed for first-time jobless benefits since the lockdown began. So despite the hope restoring non-farm payrolls recovery and the overhyped bounce in retail sales and soft sentiment surveys, for the 16th week in a row, over 1 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits for the first time. Texas, New Jersey, Louisiana suffered the biggest increases in jobless claims in the prior week. And that brings the total, the 16-week total to 49.993 million. We will call that an even 50, dramatically more than at any period in American history. Now, it is slowing down. There, There's a drop in the, the amount of... Um, claims that we're getting every week, but I, I don't think that's a, a really a, a great sign here. And actually, one of the, the more frightening statistics is that far more than twice as many Americans have filed for unemployment than jobs were gained during the last decade since the end of the Great Recession. There were 22.13 million jobs gained in 10 years, and in 16 weeks, we lost 50 million. So we lost more than twice that. And that amounts to about 378 jobs lost for every confirmed U.S. COVID-19 death. And that's, you know, those inflated death numbers where everybody dies. Everybody that dies of anything, as long as they had COVID, gets counted as a COVID death. So it's like 
dying from COVID and dying while having COVID from some other unrelated condition, it, it, it all ends up being a COVID death. But 378 jobs for every one of those. And then at the end of this month, remember, we have that $600 a week CARES Act bonus. That That uh, is supposed to end. Now, my sources tell me that the Republicans will not uh, are not going to be on board with extending that with extending the the other the, another six hundred dollars a week and they were they were critical of it the first time around too and I I think they they tried to kill the bill because of that at least initially but at the same time now we're getting bombarded with all this news of a second wave and and cases are skyrocket rocketing and you know this is the end of the world again so they might be um they might be a little more receptive to extending that $600 a week thing i mean i've gone over how destructive uh, unemployment benefits are from an economic standpoint and just how how much of a disincentive there is to go back to work when you're on the government dole so if you haven't already you know go back and listen to those episodes because i can't yeah, I can't just rehash everything every time I, I do an episode of one of these topics come up. I like I said, I don't want to do stuff in a vacuum here. I want to build on what we talk about. But there's a there's a huge um penalty for going back to work when you're on government assistance. And you know, if you're on welfare, yeah, you you're you're getting like, I don't know, around like thirty grand a year or something. It depends on where you are, but I, I've seen numbers range from like thirty to you know, uh, from like, you know, the 20s to like mid $30,000 a year. And if you're going to take a job, the job has to pay you a lot more than that because you have not only do you have all the expenses that come along with working, you know, your commute, your eating out, you know, you have to buy work clothes and everything. You might have to pay for childcare, but you get taxed. <laughs> you're going to get taxed to death on your salary. They're going to steal anywhere from, you know, 20 to 50%. So you're, you're the job that you're supposed to get coming off of welfare would have to be a, t a hell of a lot, uh, pay you a hell of a lot of money for it to be worth it for you to give up the, the 30 grand a year you're getting to do nothing and have nothing but leisure time. And yeah, unemployment benefits are a little different as they they do expire after a certain amount of time. I don't know what it is. You know, back to if you remember back to 2008, for a while they were doing 99 weeks of unemployment, which is just insane. For those of you who aren't good with um, uh, numbers and calendars and math and stuff, there are 52 weeks in a year. Okay, so you can try doing the math on that and see, you know, if, if you would go back to work before your 99 weeks are over and and nobody would and we and that's exactly what happened nobody nobody goes off of unemployment until their unemployment benefits run out i mean why would you it, it it's the same thing with welfare it doesn't make you lazy or a bad person or anything like that why would you you're making a logical decision a rational decision it makes sense why would you try to find a job while you're getting money to do nothing and Oddly enough, a friend of mine, a dear, 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 dear friend of the show actually just got laid off and they had a very successful career. They were making a, a good amount of money, think into the, the six figure range, into the top 5% of American earners, which, you know, it might surprise a lot of you to know that to be in the top 
1% of America, you know, the 1% that Bernie Sanders always rails against. Your income for a family only needs to be about 400 and some odd thousand dollars, I believe, to be in the top 1%. And to be in the top 5%, it's like 166,000, something like that. So they got laid off. They were in the top 5%. And you know, I told them, I was like, well, make sure you go on unemployment because you've been, not only have you been paying into it for your entire working career, might as well get some of that money back. But these benefits are insane right now. And I was just talking to them today. So he was, uh, he texted me and he, you know, he was kind of laughing. He's like, they're going to give me $1,800 a month in unemployment. And then he realized that that wasn't that didn't even include the six hundred dollars a week bonus from the CARES Act, which ends this month. So uh, unfortunately for him, he got laid off at the tail end of this if they do not extend that six hundred bucks a week. So but but this month he, he's getting thirty six hundred dollars from the government. In addition, like he got a severance and everything. So and he's going to be fine. You know, he was looking to sort of transition into a, a, a new a career anyway. So um, I, I think this will just sort of light a fire under that. And and I, I think he's going to be fine. I, I'm not worried about him at all. But, you know, you got a fat severance. You get 1800 a month in uh, unemployment benefits. And then on top of that, you get $600 a week. Now, I mean, if you want to do the math on that, if, if he had gotten fired in April, okay, You'd be getting $600 a week. That's um, how many weeks are in a month? Like four? Some months there are five. So you're getting what? Like uh, That's like 2400 bucks a month plus 1800 Okay, that's $4,200 a month to not work. Tax-free. I mean, you, ever, you wonder why people aren't going back to work? $4,200 a month. That's 50 grand a year. 50 grand a year to sit on your can and do nothing. And you could totally work under the table too. I'm sure there's plenty of illegal gigs going on right now during the shutdown where you could get paid under the table and you're getting 50 grand from the government. Nobody's going back to work until these benefits run out. Of course not. And just like when the 99 weeks was over in 2008, once that ended, uh, the 100th week, everybody magically got a job. And he texted me and he's like, yeah, so apparently I have to send out two resumes a week. I have to apply for two jobs a week to keep the benefits going. And I don't know how long that they last. I don't know if it's a year now or what, uh, how long they last. They last a long time. I think you at least get like six months. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, don't hurt yourself with all that work. You got an entire week to apply for two jobs. And he goes, I'm applying for jobs that I'm wholeheartedly unqualified for in industries that I have no experience in just to make sure I don't accidentally get a job offer. I'm also inserting some spelling errors into my resume. I mean, this is what this is what people do when you get when you incentivize people to not work, when you subsidize something, you get more of it. You get more of what you subsidize and less of what you tax. And we tax people to work and we subsidize them to sit on their can all day. Is it any wonder why 50 million people are filing for unemployment right now? 
in addition, you know, of course, the lockdowns and COVID and second wave is destroying businesses. And I got some articles on that that we're going to go through. But I, I mean, at the same time, there's just nobody is going to go back to work, especially people that hate their jobs, hate their careers. They're doing some menial labor, you know, working in like a, a fast food market or a factory or something like that. When you're when you're making almost as much or in sometimes more than you were making before. And I talked about that uh, like a month or two ago on the show when businesses when we opened back up, there were all these businesses that couldn't get their employees back to work because they were getting this extra six hundred dollars a week. And they were making more being unemployed and getting their um, their benefits from the government than they were ever when they were actually working. And so, of course, of course, nobody's going to do that. Why would you? And I don't begrudge anybody for doing that. It's a, it's a logical, rational decision. It's unfortunate that our government can't make any of those. <laughs> but yeah, it's not looking good. From an economic standpoint, going forward now, we're getting, we got these 50 million that are unemployed. Uh, we have this supposed second wave, which I consider to be complete bullshit. But that doesn't mean that the government reaction to it and the, the reaction of mainstream America isn't going to just be an utter disaster and wreck things even further. And if you were ever really worried, if you didn't want to take my word for what's coming down the economic pike here, I would consider what we just got to be confirmation that everything I've been talking about on this show economically is about to come to fruition and that we are just totally fucked because the Federal Reserve came out and just said that everything is fine. <sighs> okay. Similarly, if, if for those of you who are old enough to remember the Great Recession, they said something along those lines too right before shit hit the fan. And they uh, so the Fed came out and issued a statement. The banking system remains well capitalized under even the harshest of th these downside scenarios. Oh, and if you remember back a couple months ago, I think this was back at the beginning of the whole COVID thing, you had the FDIC come out and tell you that your money is safe at the banks and the last thing you want to do is pull your money out of the banks. And in 2007... Ben Bernanke, like on the precipice of economic collapse, he infamously said, overall, the U.S. economy seems likely to expand at a moderate pace over the second half of 2007, with growth then strengthening a bit in 2008. The Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession, and the, the federal housing agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, would make it through the storm, okay? This was literally within months of them just completely collapsing and, and everything, the, the entire financial system being on the brink of uh, failure. So anytime you hear the government come out and say everything is fine, don't worry, there's nothing to be worried about here, you should start worrying. You should absolutely start worrying. I mean, this really is shaping up to be just a perfect storm for an economic disaster. We've got... um. The Fed's balance sheet posted the, the biggest weekly drop in over 11 years, right? And we, if you notice, the, the stock market was a little lackadaisical the last week or so, wasn't it? 
was down most of the week. I don't know if it actually finished in the green because it was down for a few days in a row. It, it finished up today, but I don't think it was enough to, to make up for the losses. And that should indicate to you that uh, the, the Fed, it would be further evidence that the Fed is what's propping up the stock market. If they pull off the gas a little bit, have the biggest weekly drop in their purchases of all the crap that they're buying, and lo and behold, you see a pullback in the stock market. If they take their foot off the gas, if, they, if they're the ones propping up this market, it would be like pulling the, the table out from under the tablecloth and expecting all of the, the dishes and the food and everything to stay levitating in midair. Peter Schiff uses this analogy where it's like the the magician tries to pull the tablecloth out from under the dishes and everything, and they just land on the table and everything's fine. Yeah, taking the Fed uh, monetary stimulus and and bond purchases, junk bond purchases uh, out of the out of the deal would be like removing that table out from under the tablecloth and expecting the tablecloth to hold everything up just by levitating magically in midair. But if you look at what has been happening in the stock market. Like today, the when I say the markets were up, the overall averages were up. Some of them are even making new highs, like in the NASDAQ and stuff like that. The, the overall averages are up only because they have these large companies, these large, what they call momentum stocks. And what they mean by that is people are buying these stocks simply because they're going up, okay? They're ignoring all of the other issues that you would normally look at when you're buying a stock they're they're like they're not looking at the the fundamentals uh, of the companies they're not doing any analysis on the companies it's just uh oh the stock's going up i better buy this because it's just going up that that's the momentum stock right tesla the uh, the fang stocks the the facebook apple amazon netflix i mean i guess you could argue that like netflix and amazon fundamentals get better when the COVID is uh, is forcing everybody to stay home and order things and watch TV. But the majority of individual stocks within these averages, like the, the Dow Jones or the NASDAQ, all these other stocks, they're down. They're way down for the year. It's just that you have a, a small handful of stocks that everybody's piling into, and those stocks are going higher and higher. And so it, it's enough to overshine all of the other little stocks that are down on the year. But everybody feels like they have to invest because the, the Fed's pumping in all this cheap money. You have to be invested. You can't get returns anywhere else. You have to be along the market. But as the number of stocks that continue to go up gets smaller and smaller because all of the, the fundamentals for the economy and all these other companies right, that are in these averages, these fundamentals keep crushing these other companies. All of that money that's in the stock market continues to concentrate in a smaller pool of stocks. And pretty soon, if everybody's invested in, in just a handful of stocks, well, that, that's a very uh, precarious situation to be in. It's very easy for that to just come tumbling down. Right, if one or two companies gets bad news and everybody's invested in in Netflix and and Facebook and Amazon and they get some bad earnings or something, it's like boom, that's it, the whole thing collapses, and these valuations are just absolutely insane. Nobody is paying attention to fundamentals when they're buying these momentum stocks, like Tesla, for instance. I mean, it, it hit new highs today. I think it closed above fifteen hundred. It's just going. 
through the roof for for like no reason basically i mean tesla's current market cap is more than 260 billion it's a lot more than that. i think that was when it was at like uh 14 around like 1400 and it's a hundred dollars more a share right now so it's like it's like 300 billion or something compared to 205 206 billion for like toyota okay and Market capitalization for those of you who who don't uh, abla finance, basically that just refers to the total dollar market value of a company's outstanding stock, outstanding shares of stock. Okay, we we call it a market cap for short, and it, it's basically just you you multiply the total number of the company's outstanding shares of stock that they've issued by the current market price of one share and that gives you the market cap so if you have a company that's worth uh or that has uh 10 million shares outstanding and each share is selling for a hundred dollars that would be a market cap of one billion dollars and then in theory investors take that information and, and use it to figure out the size of the company instead of using like sales or asset like their balance sheet or something like that so anyway but tesla you know they're they're worth more they have a bigger market cap than toyota even though they're the entire revenue total revenues for tesla last year were barely more than toyota's net profit I mean, Toyota sells a ton of cars. Tesla doesn't. Toyota posted a $19 billion net income profits on total revenues of $278 billion last year. Tesla had $862 million net income loss. Okay, They lost almost a billion dollars on $24.3 billion in revenue. Okay, so this is a company that's losing almost a billion dollars a year with a market cap of 260 billion and a stock price at $1,500 a share now. Profits apparently don't matter anymore. I mean, how do you value a company that loses money? Uh, let me, I can do it for you. It's worth zero, okay? Um, but profits don't matter. Apparently, it's just um, technology, regardless of whether it continues to lose money. And if you want to look at the comparison of car sales, Tesla's U.S. sales were only 8% of what Toyota's North American sales were in 2019. Toyota sold nearly 2.4 million cars and trucks versus 192,500 units for Tesla. So this is what we're talking about when uh, we're, we're talking about a bubble, when we're talking about investors just uh piling into these momentum stocks they're just buying tesla because tesla keeps going up and that works until it doesn't and eventually these fundamentals rear their ugly head and at some point that that, that bubble is going to pop and don't be there when it does so even when you know trump touts the stock market if it has a good day or something realize that those what's going on within those major averages when you actually dig into the the stocks that are in there it's really only a handful of companies that are that are keeping things afloat right now the 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 rest of the market is is a train wreck okay and if you look at you know the headlines that i i had pulled up today it was like more than half the us population is not working 
50 million Americans have lost their job in the last six weeks, 42 million unemployed, 25.5% unemployment rate, 52% of small businesses expect to be out of business within six months, 53% of restaurants closed amid coronavirus have shuttered permanently. U.S. retail apocalypse, over 25,000 stores could close by year end. But don't worry, don't worry, says the Fed, banks are going to be fine. Banks are not, are gonna weather the storm. They've they've survived all the stress tests, right? I mean, if half of businesses and half of restaurants are shut down for good, and we're paying people to not work, and we're paying companies to pay people to not work, where is this recovery going to come from, right? Like we 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 have our our entire economy is based off of people borrowing money and spending, basically, right? Service sector. Uh, jobs where where all the job growth is coming from, uh, service and entertainment, uh, uh, restaurants, bars. And the other interesting, well, troubling headline that I saw was that colleges are are moving their entire like curriculum online now. Like next semester or whatever for colleges is going to be totally online. And if you were uh, if you're a college student, you're thinking, oh great, now I won't have to pay like thirty or fifty grand a year. For an education, because it's going to be online, it'll be much cheaper. Nope, nope, they're not dropping the price. Of course not. They're still going to fleece you for as long as you uh, idiots keep paying that kind of tuition. And of course, I have gone into the the reason for the astronomical rise in college tuition previously on the show. I believe it was the uh, Maxine Waters episode where she was grilling the uh, the banks on and student loans or something like that. She was going to tackle the student loan issue. And if you were wondering why there's an issue, it's because we have people like Maxine Waters in politics in charge of that sort of thing. But colleges are going to move their curriculum online. So all of these college towns are, are just, they're going to be like ghost towns. Uh, I, I went to school in, I went to James Madison University. And that town... Harrisonburg, Virginia, it's not that big. The school had like almost 20,000 kids in it, okay? So we that town would have 20,000 kids coming in, renting apartments, eating at restaurants, drinking at bars. They didn't really have much of a bar scene there. It was mostly like house parties and things like that. But, uh, you know, renting apartments, what are all these landlords and all these college uh, towns going to do when the, the 30,000 kids that were supposed to come rent their apartments don't show up anymore because they're just taking their classes online. The landlords still have mortgages to pay. They still have to pay their property taxes. They still have to do maintenance on the building. None of that goes away. Their bills are still there. They just don't have any people renting the units. So they have to come out of pocket. I mean, nobody's going to be there. None of these towns are going to have any of these college kids. And some of the stocks that are getting crushed the most, are, I think, are some of these banking stocks. And banks are in big trouble because not only are a lot of these landlords probably going to be underwater on their mortgage payments to the banks, and the banks might have to repossess those. I'm seeing headlines coming out of like Manhattan. Manhattan rental market implodes. Median rent plunges most ever as vacancies hit record high. So people are fleeing cities. The city rental market is starting to show damage from the pandemic. Available listings surged 85% from a year earlier to 10,789, an all-time high for a single month. 
Predictably, all that excess inventory has put a dent in pricing, with the median rent tumbling 6.6% to $3,242. Oh, you could uh, you could actually afford an, uh, an apartment in New York <laughs> on unemployment if you're getting the uh, the 1,800 plus your 600 a week. Um, the first decline in 18 months and the biggest in uh, drop in data going back to 2011. Many New Yorkers have lost a taste for the dense city living while the coronavirus raged, shuttering office buildings and giving people few reasons to stick around. The delayed response is because apartment apartments vacated during the three-month lockdown were heaped onto the market at the end of June with the state when the state lifted the ban on in-person real estate showings. New lease signings jumped 45% last month. To get those tenants, landlords had to offer average rent discounts of 2%, more than double what they were giving last year. They piled on sweeteners such as free month's rent and and payment of broker fees in 45% of the deals. Even with all that, vacancy rates still climbed 3.67%, which is a, a record in data going back to 2006. So you've got all this real estate in cities where nobody wants to live anymore because they're, they're cesspools for coronavirus. Everything's shut down. People are rioting and destroying businesses. And they're expensive. It's expensive to live in the city. And, and people, are, people are growing weary of that. All of these office buildings are, are now worthless because nobody's going into the office anymore. Everybody's working from home. All these college towns that were dependent on college students coming in and renting places, they're going to be empty. Banks are going to be in big trouble. That people go When people go under on these properties, the bank has to take possession, right? Because that's the, the bank loans the money, the, the property is the collateral, right? And when they take back that, their collateral because you can't, uh, you can't make the payments anymore as the landlord, because you don't have anybody in your building or you don't have anybody renting your apartment. The bank then has to uh, do what's called a, a mark to market. They have to take that uh, that property that used to be basically on their books as an asset, right? They were getting payments in regularly monthly mortgage payments into the bank. Now it's a liability and they have to mark that liability to what the current market price is. And since nobody wants to live there, that current market price is going to be far lower than when it was when they initially loaned out the money. So they're going to have to put huge losses on their books when they mark these to market. That goes on to their their balance sheet there. And these banks, the reason why the, their, their stocks are getting hit so hard is they're not momentum stocks, right? Banks, you you can evaluate a bank. They have a balance sheet. You can look at it. And, and people don't just uh, buy bank stocks because they're going up. They actually look at the fundamentals of a bank and all of these loans are going bad. Their collateral, the collateral that's backing these loans is, is losing value. They're going to be in a world of hurt. So uh, I don't know. This is uh, this is shaping up to be quite a uh, a bad situation uh, for the real estate market, for the banking industry, for the job industry, for for pretty much everything. Uh, especially considering the coronavirus has like a ninety nine point eight five whatever survival rate. Uh, you know, it's a virus that's so so deadly and scary. We have to shut everything down. But you also might not even know that you had it. You basically have to get tested to to know whether or not you have it. That's how uh, 
scary and and deadly the the coronavirus is for most people. I, obviously, some people it is a very serious thing. I don't want to make light of that, but man, we are doing a tremendous job of destroying everything. These banks are in a world of trouble, despite what the Federal Reserve is trying to tell you. And there is a recession on the horizon, a, a pretty deep depression, actually. So, as usual, don't listen to what government agents say. And yes, the Fed is an agent of the government, despite their claims to the contrary. There you go. More proof not to listen to anything they say. Anyway, um, I'm going to wrap there today, guys. I think that's all I have to talk about. I had a lot of other um, things in the stack today, a couple other interesting articles, but I'm, I'm probably running a little long right now. Maybe I will save them for next week. They should still be relevant. And uh, do me a favor, just take this show or any of your other, take your favorite episode. I don't know what episode hooked you to this podcast, attracted you to this podcast. People, you know, filter in at different points. Pick your favorite episode and just share it with somebody that you think would enjoy it. Hell, do it with two people that you think would enjoy it. Let's let's uh, start growing this show a little bit more. I want to keep seeing our numbers re- really get going here. The second half of the year, I want to uh, I have some lofty goals for the show, and I want to start hitting some of these targets that I have in my mind here. And I'm going to need your help to do that. So share the show. Follow me on Twitter. Join our private Facebook group. And if you want to support the show monetarily, to help fund the things I got to do that are necessary to try to increase the reach, you can go to peddlingfictionpodcast.com and and you have a number of options on uh, on what to do there. I think you can you know donate as little as like a dollar a month or something like that. So um, if that's something that's in the cards, great. Otherwise, all I ask that you really do is listen and uh, listen listen every day, and if you can, share the show. If you can, donate even better. But um, I will keep doing what I do if you can do all that for me. And until next week, you know the drill. Just keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.